Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. If you are guests of ours, we've been studying through Revelation together on Sunday mornings, and we've uh, arrived here at chapter 6 this morning. And, and let me just say, this, this begins the, the portion of the book of Revelation that, that's hard. Uh, it, it's hard to read. It's hard to stomach. It's hard uh, to just put our minds around and grab hold of it. Um, but nonetheless, it is true. Nonetheless, it is vital. Nonetheless, it is important for us to study it, to, to do our very best to understand it, uh, and to continue to teach uh, its truth. So let me, let, let's kind of recap, if we can, for just a moment. Let's kind of get back or go backwards to get to where we are. In chapter 1, we studied in detail the Apostle John's vision of the risen Lord. And if you'll remember, John used several different descriptors uh, of Christ that, that point us to a little bit different of who Christ is, a little bit different aspect of his nature, his character, and his attribute. Uh, we saw that he is the faithful witness, that he is the firstborn from the dead, that he's the ruler of the kings of the earth, that he is the alpha and the omega, that he is the first and the last, that he is the living one that he is the he, he he is the one who who is and who was and who is to come that he is the almighty that the lord jesus is the almighty and then we come into chapters 2 and 3 and we see seven letters seven short letters written to seven churches of the first uh, century and in those letters we saw uh, the lord jesus just show us different strengths and different weaknesses about the church and in many ways, you and I can take our very own church in the year 2023, and we can look at those letters, and we can find ourselves in those in different ways. Specifically, the Lord, um, just we looked at the Lord's approval of those churches, His accusation against those churches, and His admonition to those church of to those churches about what He wanted them to do and and what He wanted them to be, and the difference He wanted them to make. Uh, in their community. And then we get to chapters 4 and 5, and what we find is we see this picture of heaven, and we are shown the eternal occupation of the saints of God. What is that? It is the uninhibited worship of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one seated on the throne, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the one who is victorious, who is conquered, the Lamb of God. And now the scene dramatically shifts with chapter 6, because beginning in chapter 6, we see the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, break and open six of the seven seals. And as a result, God's judgment of sin and unbelief commences. Yes, God is a God of love, and He is a God of grace, and He is a God of mercy, and He's a God of goodness and kindness and compassion and, and generosity and care and, and so forth, but he is also a God of, of judgment. And we begin to see that unfold here in chapter 6. The seven seals contain all of the judgments of God against sin and unbelief, but, but it happens like, a, like, an, like peeling an onion, if you will. We're going to peel one layer at a time. So we're going to peel the first seal, then the second and the third and so forth. Then we get to the seventh seal. And when we peel the seventh seal, the seven trumpet judgments are revealed. 
And then we're going to peel the seven trumpet judgments back, and then the seven bold judgments are revealed. Now, we won't get to all of that today, obviously, and not until chapter 16. And so it's kind of like an onion. You peel one away at a time, and we just begin to see more and more. Now, why is it important for us to study these things? Why is it important for us to, stu- to know and understand the end times and the sequence of the end times and what is happening uh, around the corner? Number one, uh, God promises blessing. He promises His divine favor to those who study and obey these prophecies. Look with me here from Revelation 1 and verse 3. Uh, we, we studied this in detail several weeks ago, but let's just look at it real quick. Jesus says this to us. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. And so God promises blessing. He promises divine favor to those of us who study and learn and try our very best to understand what is happening here. The second reason uh, is that Jesus admonished us on several occasions in the gospel. He admonished us to be ready for his return. In other words, you and I should not be caught off guard. You and I should not be surprised at the things that are happening around us because Jesus has told us about these things. Look with me here at Luke chapter 12 and verse 40. Here's just one reference uh, to his admonition to us to be ready. He says, You also be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. As followers of Christ, you and I should be living with expectation and anticipation of the return of Christ. We should be looking forward to that. We should be excited about Christ's return. And so as we study this, it will only help us be prepared to meet the Lord face to face. Uh, Let me ask you a question. Are you prepared to meet the Lord? I think that's a question all of us should ask every morning when we wake up and we begin our day. Am I ready to meet the Lord? Today might be the day we meet the Lord. Are we ready for that? And studying the, the, the prophecy of the end times only helps us to be ready for that day, all right? And so we're going to dive into this. We're going to look at all of chapter 6 this morning. So we're going to go fast. So buckle your seatbelts. If you're following along there, you see the notes on the back of the bulletin. The first seal we see in verses 1 and 2 could be characterized in this way. As false peace. As false peace. Let's, Let's read those verses together. The Apostle John says, Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. A crown was given to him, and he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. Now, most commentators believe that the rider of this white horse refers to the coming ruler or the prince who will come, prophesied in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26. Here's what we know about this individual. He will become the world leader. He will unite the world around one global identity. Now, that sounds far-fetched to you and I today, as much division as there is in the world, but in some way, somehow, this individual brings the world together. 
He will seemingly solve all of the world's problems. Daniel's prophecy teaches us in chapter 9 and verse 27 that he will, he will sign a peace agreement with Israel promising, promising to protect her from her enemies. It's quite astonishing to me, quite amazing as a matter of fact, that in the history of humanity, Israel is the only nation that is constantly under attack. They're the only nation that is, that is seemingly hated by all. And so they enter into this peace agreement with this, this, this global ruler that he ensures and promises their peace. This leader is Satan's masterpiece. He is the counterfeit of all that Christ is and claims to be. He is anti-Christ. The white horse he rides signifies his role as a conqueror. You see, the world's longing for safety, the world's longing for security, the world's longing for peace will play right into the hands of Antichrist, who, who will take advantage of the entire world. Eventually, he will demand the world worship him as God. He ushers in a period of peace that the Bible teaches us will last for three and a half years, the first half of the seven-year tribulation. Now, that peace will be deceptive. That's why we call it false peace, because it will lead to full war and famine and great death. And we're going to see that with the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth seal uh, here in just a moment. He comes wearing a crown, not the crown of royalty, not a diadem, but the crown of a victor. Now, it's interesting. He will not conquer by military force. He will conquer by deceit. Listen to what we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders, and with every unrighteous, listen to this, deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false. It's very interesting. As you study Scripture, one of Satan's uh, main strategies from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden, Eden even until now, has been, has been deceit. Satan is clever, and he is crafty, and he is shrewd. Here's what he does for us, even today. Satan puts makeup on sin and temptation, and he makes it look appealing, and he makes it look attractive, and he makes it look like it's a lot of fun, and then he reels us in slowly and deceptively until you and I are neck deep in a mess, uh, usually of our own making, because we've, we've believed the deception, we've believed the lies. And in some way, he is able to take Eight billion people by today's number and bring them together in one world identity <laughs> through great deception and masquerading of truth. Now, as Christians, you and I need to remember something, that, that there will never be international peace until the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes to establish his kingdom. Now, don't misunderstand me. Does that mean we shouldn't strive for, for, for geopolitical peace? Absolutely not. We ought to strive for peace. We ought to want to see man get along with man. But the reality is it's not going to happen until Christ returns to establish his kingdom. That's the first seal. Look with me in verses 3 and 4. We see the second seal, what we've labeled as great 
wars. Look what we read here. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse went out, a fiery red one, and its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and a large sword was given to him. In Scripture, particularly in end times prophecy, red is associated with terror and death. And so what happens here with the second seal, war breaks out, and, and, and the peace that we thought we were enjoying is taken from the world. And this, this, this great holocaust of death begins to happen. Notice what we see there. You see this great loss of life, that people would slaughter one another. The breaking of this second seal shows us the beginning of God's wrath against sin and unbelief. For notice what we read here. The writer was allowed to take peace. He's still under God's sovereign control, but God is initiating his judgment against sin and unbelief. Now look with me next at the third seal, one we would call famine in verses 5 and 6. When he opened the thir third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held, held a set of scales in his hand. Then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil and the wine. In, in Scripture, particularly in Jeremiah chapter 14 and in Lamentations chapter 5, the color black is associated with famine. Now, this is a logical consequence to worldwide wars, a, a famine. Uh, we've seen that even in our own day with, with World War I and World War II. We saw a rationing of food and a rationing of supplies and a rationing of, of shipments and, and logistics and all the rest as a result of a great worldwide flood, uh, a war. And we're going to consent and we'll continue to see that same thing in the end times. And the law of supply and demand kicks in. What do we read here? That basic food staples will become priceless luxuries that very few can afford. We're told here that a denarius, a day's wage, will be the cost of a loaf of bread. Now, let's try to put that into numbers you and I might can understand, all right? Uh, the federal minimum wage is $7.25. Now, I doubt very many of us earn $7.25 an hour, but let's just use that number. A typical workday is eight hours. So if we multiply $7.25 by eight hours, a day's wage is $58, okay? Let's just use those numbers. Can you imagine going to the grocery store and spending $58 on a loaf of bread? The economy will be in shambles. Inflation will be outrageous. Those staples, milk and bread and eggs and, and the like, will become luxuries that only a few will be able, to, be able to afford. The fourth seal, we can call it massive death. Look what we read here. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider was named Death. And Hades was following after him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. 
John describes a writer who's, who, who's pictured as death with Hades, the abode of the dead following closely behind. The color pale green resembles that of a decomposing corpse. Now, this is a dramatic picture of divine judgment. For, for God gives the rider of this horse the authority to kill one-fourth of humanity. Now, let's just try to play with those numbers if we can. Right now, according uh, to the Internet, I, don't, I know the Internet's not always accurate, but, but here are the numbers. Right now, there are 7.888 billion people on planet Earth. If a fourth of those were to, 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 to be a part of this judgment, that would equate to 1.972 billion people. Let's try to get a little more specific. That is approximately a population equal to Europe, North America, and South America combined. Think about those numbers. All of Europe, all of North America and all of South America enduring the wrath of God. John tells us that death will occur by sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. This event will be unlike anything the world has ever seen. Death on such a massive scale that, that, it, that it's even hard to comprehend. Death that no war has seen, death that no disease or plague or famine or natural disaster has ever seen. Death in great magnitude with the fourth seal. And then next we come to the fifth seal, and it can be labeled martyrdom. For not only will, be there, be the, will there be great death for the unbelieving, but there will be great martyrdom of the believing. Look what we read here. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. John sees a vision of those who will be martyred for their faith. Martyrdom will be as common in those days as it is uncommon today. And these cry out to God, wanting vengeance on those responsible. They want vengeance on those who took their life and who made them suffer incredible pain and agony. Now, be rest assured, God will indeed hold those responsible. We see that in Revelation chapter 20 uh, in verses 11 through 15. Those responsible for the death of these saints of God will, uh, will be held accountable and suffer as a result. Now notice the two things that God does, though. He gives them first, he gives them a white robe. What is the significance of that? It's a reward of grace. It's symbolic of eternal life and eternal righteousness. But he also gives them his promised word, his spoken word. He says, listen, rest a little while longer. They're in the presence of their Savior, and he says, just, just hold on, rest a little while longer, 
while, I'll com- while I complete what all I have to do. Just rest. And then we come to the sixth seal. One you and I could label as divine judgment, for God is the only one acting in verses 12 through 17. Let's read that together. Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to stand? In Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, Jesus said this to us. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the power of the heavens will be shaken. And so Jesus has warned us of this day. The Apostle John has warned us here in Revelation 6 of this day. And so we see elements of God's uh, wrath against sin and unbelief. Number one, the earth is affected. A great violent earthquake, unlike anything we have ever experienced, takes place. The second thing we see here is the the sun is affected. It it turns black. And we just sang about that in, in, in one of our songs here earlier. Now, that is significant not only because we lose light, but we lose heat. Both are necessary for life. The moon is affected. It turns blood red. The prophet Joel prophesied of this day. Here's what he said to us. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Notice what he says, the great and terrible day. It is both great and it is both terrible. And I'll elaborate on that in just a moment. The normal cycle of daylight and darkness is disrupted, which would cause significant panic not only to you and I, but panic to the world and to creation. The stars are affected. They begin to fall from the sky. The sky is affected. John says it was split apart like a scroll being rolled up. I don't know all that means, but I, I, I know this, that if, that if something were to occur that caused our atmosphere to, to split apart, that, that's not good. Okay, that'd be a bad thing. The mountains and the islands are affected. It says every island and mountain is moved from its place. There will be a a catastrophic geologic occurrence of of gigantic proportions like nothing we've ever seen. Just try to imagine that every mountain you're familiar with is moved off its foundation. Every island is removed from where it is. The catastrophe will be great, so great, beginning in verse 15, here's what we read, that man pleads for death to escape God's wrath. And notice closely here, no class of man, no demographic of man is exempt from wanting to die to escape God's wrath. Kings, nobles, the generals, 
the rich, the powerful, every slave and every free person hides in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains trying to escape God's judgment on sin and unbelief. Now, unfortunately, the reaction of the unbelieving world is one of panic and chaos instead of one of repentance. Now, here's what's so interesting. As we continue to study Revelation, there are several occasions as God is unleashing his judgment against sin and unbelief where he invites the world to repent and to follow him. But on every occasion, the world turns its back on Christ and continues to go down its own path of destruction. So let's kind of just wrap this all up together. You and I live in a world with unimaginable suffering. Suffering through famine, disease, strange accidents and tragedies, natural disasters. We don't have any way of knowing the number of people who have suffered and died as a result of those things. And then we add to it man's inhumanity toward man, war, terrorism, crime, domestic abuse, discrimination, human trafficking, slavery. Those things continue to reap horror upon horror of humanity. Think about the 20th century alone. Let me, let me just share with you some numbers. Think about just the previous century. Hitler was responsible for the deaths of millions of Jews, gypsies, Poles, Slavs, and Christians. Stalin, the father of militant communism, murdered as many as 40 million of his own people. Mao of China is believed to have murdered 72 million of his own countrymen, ushering in a communist, socialist, cultural re revolution. All that in just one 100-year period, not, not to count the previous centuries. And as remarkable as those numbers are, none of that will compare to the wrath of God against man's sin and unbelief. That is the incredibly bad news of chapter 6 of Revelation. Let me share with you the incredibly good news. Are you ready? The wrath of God is reserved for those who reject Christ in this life. Those who place their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be spared the wrath of God unleashed during these days. Why is that important? Because I want you to think about where you are in that conversation. Look with me from John chapter 3. Look with me at these verses this morning. Beginning in verse 16, here's what we read. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. Verse 36, the one who believes in the son has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe in the son will not see life. Instead, 
the wrath of God remains on him. Now, why is that important? For this reason. If you're here today and you have made a decision to surrender in faith to Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then the events of Revelation chapter 6 will not be yours to enjoy. They don't really apply to you. Now, we need to know and understand it so that we can, can, can share and minister and witness to those in our sphere of influence. However, if you are here today, listen carefully, and you have never made a personal decision to surrender in faith to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then the events of Revelation chapter 6 will be very real in your life if you continue to say no to Christ. I don't know how to put it any simpler. I can't put it in any plainer language than that. So here's my admonition to you. Here's my my, my plea to you this morning. Say yes to Jesus Christ. Place your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and the promise of eternal life. Don't make it, don't even give it a chance that Revelation 6 may become real in your life. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for this day that you've given us. I want to thank you for the opportunity we've had to to sing your praises, to fellowship, and to study your word together. And here we are, Father God, as we wrap up our time today. My humble prayer is that if there is any individual in this room, that has not made a personal decision to say yes to Jesus Christ, that today they would say yes to Jesus. That today, in this moment, they would surrender in faith to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin and the certainty of eternal life. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you were here today and you would be honest with yourself, And more importantly, honest with God. And say, Lord, I've never placed my faith in Jesus Christ. But today I want to. I would encourage you to just in your own way, just articulate this desire. Father God, I believe that Jesus Christ is your son. I believe that he died on the cross to pay the penalty of my sin. I believe that he rose from the dead. I understand that I'm a sinner. I understand that I need a Savior. And right now, as best as I understand, Lord, I'm asking Christ to be my Savior. I'm surrendering in faith to him. I want to live my life for him. I want to know forgiveness of sin. I want to know that I have the certainty of eternal life in your presence. And so right now, Lord Jesus, here's my life. Take it. If that is your heart's desire, young man or young woman, old man or old woman, by the authority of God's word, if you are sincere in that earnest plea, God has saved and redeemed you. He has brought you into his family. You are now his child and belong to him for all of eternity. And today is the first day of the greatest adventure life provides, and that is the adventure of following Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for grace and mercy. 
Thank you, Father God, that you have rescued us from your wrath, that you have rescued us from our sin and brought us into your family. Lord, continue to grow us and mold us and shape us into the men or the women you created us to be and the men and women you have gifted us to be and redeemed us to be as your children, as your ambassadors to the nations. Move and work, Father God, in ways that only you can in these final few moments for your glory and for your honor. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.